Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Okay, I'm so excited. (laughs) So my message today is titled, By Joy. It should be up there in a minute. It's coming. There you go. Are you a victim of systemic thievery of joy? (laughs) That sounds very complicated, doesn't it? And scary and morbid. But wait, because this is not the end of our story. So what is your best feature? I want you to think about what your best feature is. And I don't want you to be shy. You can just be as honest as possible. Is it your beautiful six-pack or your beautiful dreamy eyes, your luscious locks. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, Mitch, what's yours? <laughs> okay. Um, mine is joy. My best feature, I, I did set you, up, set you guys up to fail a bit because I was focusing on physical when I gave you all the examples, but my best feature that I want, I want my best feature to be joy. And one day when I die, I want people to say, actually, yeah, her best feature was joy. And in a world where there are so many things that are specifically designed for pleasure and happiness and even exhilaration, joy is constantly disappearing. Like a soft drink going, like it's not fizzy anymore. It's going flat from being left open too long. And no one notices the fizzy drink going flat until a time comes for it to serve its purpose. And it's just not the same. You drink it and it is disappointing, especially if it's a day like today, and it's just not satisfactory. Last year, um, this time last year actually, we were preparing to go um, on a mission trip to Kenya. And I was there with about 12 people. And every night, um, we would pick one person, and they were um, in a spotlight. So, in, when they were, so if, when it was my turn to be on the spotlight, everyone would um, think about something that is um, valuable and awesome about that person, and they would say it, and it would be edifying and encouraging and just lifting them up, right? And so everyone had this turn, and it was awkward and fun and just so cool. And my love language is words of affirmation to give, right? So I was just in my element. I loved telling people what I loved about them. (laughs) And when it was my turn, I was like pretending that I didn't like it, but I was like eating it up. I was like, yeah, say really good things about me. (laughs) And um, so this one member in the team actually gave every person a character in the Bible. And I um, got this character. And when I received this character, I thought, oh, okay, I've never thought about that before. Um, I was, you know, hoping for someone really cool, but okay. Um, (laughs) And um, so this character is actually, that is what inspired this message. And um, one of my favorite characters now in the Bible, after kind of digging in deep, because I was like, I need to know who I am. (laughs) And um, so one of my favorite characters in the Bible is the woman who delivered her baby brother 
to a palace in the basket down the Nile. And he grew up to have a very special relationship with God. So special that even God himself said so. And if you've seen The Prince of Egypt, or better yet, read the book of Exodus, you would know that I'm talking about Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses. Miriam's name wasn't even mentioned until the end of the story, when Israelites were finally out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and then it's like, oh, this girl, Miriam, Aaron's sister, and you, know, and you kind of work it out, and that's how they know it's actually Miriam who sent, her, sent Moses in the basket, because um, it doesn't say that she did with her name. Anyway, so I kept coming back to the end of chapter 15 in Exodus, and this girl, she just felt like this freshly opened fizzy drink on a 40-degree day. And she was about 86 years old, actually, when she finished, um, like when she crossed the Red Sea. So I'm not talking about her physical fizziness. I'm talking about her spiritual fizziness. And let's actually read what the Bible says. Um, Exodus chapter 15, 19 to 21. Okay. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after them. Sorry, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Hold on a sec. I'm going to read that again because I think um, it's very, very important. So, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's just so crazy to me. To really appreciate this message, though, we need to have an understanding of the gravity of Miriam's song and Miriam's song of celebration of salvation. So let's look at some numbers to get the full picture. Not numbers, the book, actual numbers. So going back to Moses, his life can actually be sectioned into three 40-year periods. So the first 40 years, he was living in a palace. So he was, you know, he grew up in a palace. He was, he had servants to serve his every need, and he didn't have any worries he was privileged and, yeah, he had everything. And slavery was so far removed, even though it was right in front of his doorstep, it was so far removed as a concept of personal lived experience for him. He wasn't a slave. The second 40 years of Moses' life, we see he is in the desert. And when he's in the desert, he is free to pursue whatever he liked. And he was now not just removed 
from slavery through class and money and a palace gate, he was removed geographically, he was removed physically from slavery. And then, of course, the last 40 years, we see him in the wilderness, and he is, you know, walking around, but that's not the point of the story. So, you know, he's there. But for the first 80 years of Moses' life, he was free and he was privileged and he actually wasn't a slave. That was not his personal lived experience. But the story is not the same for Miriam. Miriam, for 86 years, was in slavery and she was born in slavery. So she knew what oppression and injustice was. So when they come out, when they cross this Red Sea, after witnessing God's miraculous signs and just amazing, these plagues, this craziness, she is singing with a different kind of joy than Moses, right? She is singing with this joy of, in the light of her whole life of oppression and injustice. So, She rejoices also. This is a very important point too. If we go back to the um, chapter passage, it says, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them. So she, as soon as she stepped out, she went through the Red Sea. She was not just rejoicing for herself. She was leading others in this joy. So she was saying to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So she is saying, guys, guys, have you not realized what has just happened? Because this God has triumphed gloriously and he's our God. So let's sing to him. I don't know if if I was in 86 years of slavery, I don't know if I'm going to go and be like, hey, wait, let's all just sing to God. I think I'll just be like, oh, thank God. (laughs) You know, finally after 86 years of slavery. Um, But she does. And I just think, wow, girl, you are busy. And (laughs) if we have the fruit of the Spirit, we have access to that kind of joy. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we have access to that. We have access to that joy. But let's not fall under any illusion. Because the thief does come to steal, kill, and destroy. And there are more and more complicated and intricate systems that exist to suppress that joy. And it's scary, actually, how easy it is to play with mass psychology. And you only need one weapon, and the weapon is money. There was this man called George Washington Hill, and he was the president of American Tobacco Company in the 20s. And he had one huge problem that stopped him from doubling his profits, right? I actually heard this in a podcast, very good one. Very good. This cultural moment, everybody should listen to it. (laughs) And the problem was that women didn't smoke. And it wasn't socially acceptable for them to smoke in public at that time. So it was stopping him from having twice as much profit. So he hired this public relations expert, Edward Bernays, to reverse the taboo against women smoking in public. 
And this guy was so smart because he ran a campaign that the world had never seen before. So Edward Bernays, being the expert that he was, knew that this pursuit to increase profits had to be marketed in a way that increases emotional investment. So not just financial, but people had to be emotionally invested. So he knew that it can't just be aggressive marketing and painting it in pink. It had to be something else, right? So this campaign called Torches of Freedom. Has anyone heard of this campaign? Okay, good. <laughs> Began. And this campaign, like many, many ads were published, right, trying to convince women how smoking cigarettes would land them a worthy cause for equality and women's rights. So in there, can we see how, like, superwoman, smoke a cigarette, you will be a superwoman and believe in yourself. So all of these were just, like, aggressively advertised everywhere. So women, they're just walking around and they see, oh, wait, that girl looks so free, I better reach for a cigarette. So in just five years' time, guess what happened? Their profits doubled. Yeah. And <laughs> so women's aspirations for a better life were suddenly then exploited in this capitalistic pursuit. And all the women in the country just took to this newfound symbol. But maybe some of us are thinking that, oh, yeah, well, we wouldn't be that gullible, would we? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, like, we're not going to be deceived that easily. But uh, let me tell you an example of present-day deception, a mass deception that happened. And, um, yeah, it's a bit scary. So I'm sure most, most people in this room have searched up something on their phone, like for an event, birthday or Christmas or whatever it is, right? And then you start getting those ads that's like related to whatever you searched for. And you're like, I wasn't even looking to buy this product, but suddenly it's there. And so like just clever, clever algorithms that start giving you these products and saying, oh my goodness, buy me, buy me, buy me. And then you're like, okay. <laughs> and or if you're smart, you're like, no, mute. So best case scenario, you like the discounts and you're like, okay, yep, I'll buy them. It's convenient. Worst case scenario, you hate it and you ignore them or spend less time on Facebook or just mute them. But wait, there is this dark dystopian underbelly to targeted marketing. So there are currently tech companies that are paid by big Fortune 500 companies and political parties to harvest personal information from Facebook profiles and then categorise them into different categories, different personalities, and whoever is categorised into the personality called the persuadables are then targeted with political ads that are so extreme that it will sway you, right? And this has happened in the Trump and Clinton election. So Hillary Clinton actually... Uh, paid, I think, $3 billion, $3 million, sorry, dollars uh, for online campaigning. And guess how much, how, many, how much money Trump paid? Anyone take a guess? $77 million, $1 billion. Yeah, so $3 million compared to $77 billion. That is how much money this deception, this industry of deception has. And, 
And to think, oh, so is democracy even real? Like, if we are being tempted and deceived and manipulated in this way, what are we actually, are we even choosing to vote for different people? And anyway, I'm not here to talk about politics, but um, it also happened in Brexit and lots of other Asian and African countries um, where these random businesses who wanted to, like, had capitalistic pursuits were organising riots and um, strikes in different parts of the world. And all these young people were turning up with these shirts and um, signs and logos and they were protesting, but no one knew who actually organised the protest. And suddenly it's like people are actually so passionate and they're saying, yep, let's, you know, we fight for this cause and no one actually organised the cause. And, you know, this all sounds like a big conspiracy theory, I get it. But it's actually very, very true. And there are lots of documentaries you can watch on them. One of them is Cambridge Analytica. And in the map there, that's how many countries that they reached um, with their influence of harvesting Facebook profiles. And there are more that actually includes Australia as well. But um, <clears throat> we are allowing these technologies to manipulate us, right? And this mass manipulation only becomes easier and easier with the ad advancement of technology. And in the torches of freedom time, these women could have just ignored these ads or not go into places where all these ads were aggressively being displayed or just not read them. But we have these manipulation devices in our bedrooms. We have these manipulation devices in our toilet seats. We have these devices in our cars, everywhere we go. We are inviting this modern day propaganda into our own homes. That is the reach of deception today. So, I don't know where I am. We are confidently resting in the pretense that we can't be deceived like these clueless millennials or these clueless boomers, depending on how old you are. But there's this quote, right, from the movie The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Isn't that clever? Wow. Because when, there, when we realise that there is no threat that exists, what, there isn't fear. And when there's no fear, there isn't a need for a defence. Or when there's no need for defence, we are open and we are easy targets. And I'm not saying we should build these defence systems because we're afraid, but we need to build these defence systems because we are smart. And <laughs> this, suddenly this deceptiveness is sold as liberation. They say, smoke and be rebellious, says capitalism, but that isn't freedom. And they say, buy this product and you'll have fulfilment. But these products are actually designed in the way to only give you fulfilment for like five minutes so that you'll go back and spend again. And promising empowerment, but only ever delivering enslavement and exploitation. And we are suddenly driven further and further away from joy. We are more easily deceived than we realise. And that is why we need to surround ourselves with the armour of God, with God's word. Because otherwise, money becomes our defence system. And that's a pretty bad idea in, the ki in, a, in God's kingdom where earthly wealth has no currency. 
But our joylessness, this is all very morbid, but our joylessness is not the end of the story. And here's what the New Testament has to say about joy. The kingdom, this is Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom of God. That's weighty. John 16, 19 says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Wow, do we believe that for ourselves? No one will take away our joy. Can we say that we are truly joyful? Next one, James 1, 2 to 4, and I love this one. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow. Can we say that we are lacking in nothing? Really? Do we? Like, yes, we can say that in theory, but do we believe that in reality? Lacking in nothing? I can think about so many things that I want to say, oh, well, I'm lacking in that and that and that and that. And this message is actually very much for me as well. And yeah, so what does this all mean for us? It means that joy is not optional when you belong to the Lord. Joy is an essential part of our lives as children of God. And in Christ, we have access to this indescribable joy that is not just simultaneously in existence with suffering, but it goes deeper than our greatest sorrows. This joy that is not just simultaneous, but goes deeper. Wow, that is just such a good promise for us. And it's good news that joy is not optional, right, in the Christian life, because the final weight doesn't fall on us. It falls on God. And we can just drop off all our burdens because that's not what we're called to do, to carry them. And how are we going to reshape and rethink our approach to joy? Christ has died for us. And we live in this periphery of heaven and earth. Are we satisfied with the momentary satisfaction that this world gives us only to gain? Or are we hungry and thirsty for more of that joy that comes from having the fruit of the Spirit? Because joy is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, right? We have joy already. It's just suppressed sometimes. Joy is inevitable when you have the Holy Spirit. So let's, play, pray that, let's pay this close attention to the systems designed to drive us away from the joy of the Lord. Miriam, she had a reason to rejoice. She had this massive reason to rejoice despite her past, but she had this massive reason to rejoice because of her past. She had, 
she had this massive reason to rejoice because she knew that God was bigger than single stories. But she knew that God was also intricately interested in single stories. Wow, he is just so contradicting. God is bigger than miracles. She's seen the miracles of God, right? Wow, she's seen incredible miracles. And she rejoiced because she knew that's not all he is. God is worthy. And she says, let's sing to the Lord because he has triumphed gloriously. Wow. So we can find a reason to rejoice, right? We can find that joy if Miriam can find that joy. So I want to go to the next slide. So I'm doing this unit at uni, economics, and I always used to say, oh, I can't math, quote unquote, but I'm actually doing pretty good. So it turns out I can math. And in this, I learned this thing called a policy lag, policy lags. And every time, so that basically is when economists or governments recognize a problem in society, ec economic problem, it's a time from when they recognize the problem to when they put a policy in place to counteract the impacts of that problem. So it's like when you make the policy, how long does it take to recognize and implement, right? And there are three lags, like three things that kind of make it tag along and you just, it takes time. And the first lag is a recognition lag. So first, we need to, they need to identify, okay, what is the problem? right? Is it homelessness? Is it drug abuse? Is it domestic violence? Is it suicide rates? What is it, right? And most societies have all of those issues. And so, for example, if they decide to tackle homelessness, then they have to go, okay, let's identify all of the problems, that, all of the issues that we need to tackle. What do we need to do? And then they go into the decision lag where, you know, the federal government and this government, every, everyone has to make a decision and agree on what policies to put in place to tackle the issue. And then you've got, once the decision is made, what are we going to do about it? Then you've got the implementation lag. And that is the actual actions and steps taken to ensure that this issue is counteracted that people actually do have a place to stay. So now for this scenario, right, I think, like, I know this is an economic thing, but we can apply it to our lives because we recognise, yep, there are these crazy things that are huge systems that are just suppressing joy and minimising joy. So let's recognise the problem. What in your life is actually suppressing your joy? Is it busyness or commitment to things you shouldn't have committed to? Is it comparison? Is it social media? What is it? So we need to identify. And then is our decision, what are we going to do about this? Because we know that we've got access to this joy. What are we going to do? What is our plan? And then we've got our implementation lag. And I think most people are pretty good at the first two. They think, you know what, mm, two-thirds, that's a pass. <laughs> but no, implementation is the most important of them all, right? Because we actually need to do something about it. And because God's, you know, God's will be done, yes, but we need to act. And so what are the steps we are going to take 
to make sure that we bring unsuppressed, I don't know if that's a word, our joy, that we stop being deceived by these things. And the best tool for that is scripture. It's the word of God. And surrounding yourself with people who love the Lord. But the first point of call and the most important point is God, prayer, time with God, and actually surrounding ourselves with scripture. So I'm going to pray and um, maybe the band can come up. Yes, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, for the fruit of the Spirit, for allowing us access to this joy that regardless of how deep it is, how deeply suppressed it is, how long it has been suppressed for, Lord, you can just bring that back. You can break it out, Lord. We know that nothing can stop you. And Lord, I pray that you allow us to implement things, allow us to act, and that we will be truthful and honouring to you in how we do it. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing us here. I pray in Jesus' name.